Hello and welcome back to the Afros and Knives podcast, the interview series featuring Black women working in food and beverage, wine, hospitality, food tech and science, agriculture, food justice, and food media. I am your host, Tiffany Rozier, and this week's conversation is with co-founder of Exile Olive Oil, Skylar Meeks. So Exile is out here producing one of the world's best olive oils and i am encouraging you all and if you are still in relationship with some off-the-shelf commercial mass-produced brand of olive oil go ahead and break up with that and get your hands on a handful of these bottles and you know just upgrade your life in general upgrade your kitchen upgrade your pantry skylar and her husband are producing something truly exquisite and something really beautiful that will be a legacy product so definitely get your hands on it it sells out I promise you, you will not regret it. They are based out of Austin, Texas. So their operations is based in Austin, Texas, but their olives are grown on the family estate in Southern Italy in Calabria. They have been producing olive oil on that land for 300 years uh, or for three generations. So, you know, the story is in the soil. Skylar is running the digital product and social media marketing. So she's the voice and face of the brand. She was featured on Forbes's 30 Under 30 this year in the food category. She has also been featured in Cuisine Noir. And last year, Exile made Oprah's favorite things list. So definitely, you know, it was good enough for Oprah. It's good enough for the rest of us. And yes, barring your personal feelings about Oprah, that's fine. She still has good taste in olive oil. So yeah, she is, you know, Skylar is out here being the Beyonce of olive oil at the moment. And so you do not want to miss out on, you know, getting connected to the brand. You can visit the Exile website and order the three different varieties that came from this year's harvest. You can learn more about Skylar and her husband, Giuseppe, and learn more about their story and their family. And then you follow Exile and you can follow Skylar on social media and just watch as the story of this brand begins to unfold. This is definitely, you know, something that is a conversation about the future. This propels black food into the future. You know, taking over brands, taking over categories. Like that's the deal, that's the job. And so um, Exile is doing a really beautiful job of that. So I'm excited for you guys to hear this interview for you. Oh, actually to watch this interview because it's definitely in video as well. And you know, Skylar was so much fun to talk to and I love the work that her and her husband are doing. And so again, feel free to break up with your current olive oil brand and get some exile on your shelf or in your pantry. Hello, my name is Skylar Mapes. I'm the co-founder of Exile Olive Oil, an Italian-American olive oil company. I'm currently in Calabria, Italy. It's beautiful. The sea is outside of my window right now. So if you could smell, if I could open the window, you would be able to smell the beautiful sea breeze, but for now, we can just act like we can hear the waves in the background. And I love making olive oil. <laughs> I'm an olive oil producer. I'm a marketer, saleswoman. And I love talking about olive oil and sharing high quality, extra virgin olive oil with people. See, that's I love when people can make those kind of definitive statements. I love making olive oil. And you're just like, why not jojoba oil or coconut oil or sesame oil or 
all the other oils? Like, how did you land on olive oil specifically? That was not intentional. There was not supposed to be any food making at all, actually, because my background's in architecture. So I'm from Oakland, California originally, and I went away to Tempe, Arizona, to Arizona State for university. And I studied. I lived in Arizona for 10 years. So I. Wait, where? I lived in Phoenix. I lived in downtown Phoenix. I've lived in West Phoenix, like in Avondale. Uh I lived in Scottsdale for a little while. And let's see, the last time I lived there, it was like Northwest Phoenix. So like right off of the 17 on like 26th Avenue and Thunderbird. Yeah. So yeah. Uh Uh-huh. But I am well aware of like ASU and U of A and like the, I got to the downtown campus more than I got out to Tempe, but Tempe, Mm -hmm. we would go for like shows and stuff like that. But Arizona's, well, I don't want to speak for all of Arizona because I don't know about that, but Tempe, (laughs) Tempe and Phoenix are really, really cool. And Scottsdale is beautiful. I mean, Arizona is a beautiful state. Yeah. Yeah, it's but it's got a lot of weird stuff happening out there. <laughs> like, you know, like, the people, like, here's what I have to say about, I love Arizonans. Like, I'm not trying to make a generalized statement, but a lot of them, I like to say, I are untethered. It's like they're yes, not walking yes. off the ground. <laughs> it's like, like great word. <laughs> they are not tethered to the planet. I am. It only gets stranger when you're in like Tucson and <laughs> you're just like, where are you? This is not the same planet. I don't. It's like okay, living guys. on planet. I swear. And the landscape doesn't help at all. It just makes it heightened. Exactly. Like no one smart. else. No one else has that landscape. Cause like I drove from Arizona to Boston last year or the year before now that Oh God, it's 2021. Yeah. From like the top of 2020, I drove from Arizona to Boston. And so I had to go through New Mexico and it's such a shift. Like you don't even have to know that the sign for the state line is there. You just know as soon as you like a mile into a new state, you're like, okay, I'm not in Arizona anymore. because it, It's its own place. And yeah. And when you live there, you realize like, no, everyone has a different vibe here. It's not what you think at all. But yes, go ahead. It, <laughs> ASU. Like I said, it's, it is beautiful. And I love going to school at ASU because it's the biggest university in the nation. And so you have a lot of diversity there and they have a lot of money. So they're able to get these professors from all over the world. And I had really, really cool architecture professors. And it's because of one of my professors that I was able to get an internship in Barcelona. And without that internship, I would have never met my husband. I would have never gone on this like olive oil adventure. And so I have ASU and Professor Spellman to thank for that. Thank you for Professor (laughs) Spellman and like really awesome like instructors and professors and teachers because they do, they shift your trajectory just in the slightest where you're like, I would have never probably pursued this on my own. And like to have somebody go, you should do that. You should. Yeah, this is for you. You should try that. And you're like, okay, all right. So you get to Barcelona and is that like a senior, like graduate? like? So I was the only undergrad. She basically said, if you take my seminar, you can go on this internship. And I was like, yeah, duh, like done. There's not homework. Like it was project based, right? Like it had to just get together and like do presentations on really incredible architecture buildings. And, and how hard is that? How that's not hard at all. Like, no, I can it do that without a class. It was so much fun. We had all these professors come in. So I actually met the Benedetta Tagliabue, which is actually a really famous architect. So she runs EMBT, which is one of oh, the most okay. famous architecture firms in Spain. 
And she came in and a lot of the professors that were in the U.S. that were flown into ASU to teach a seminar. And also we would focus on their projects. We got to meet all of them. So I got to meet people that used to work for her. And then I got to meet her before I went to work with her. And I was like, can I come be an intern? And she was like, of course you can. <laughs> of course I can. Yes, yes, you. And she's, like, whenever, she's actually Italian. Excuse me. She's from Venice, but she's been <laughs> in Spain for decades. She's very oh, wow. Spanish now. Oh, wow. And like Arizona is such a great place for architecture as well, like to talk about like Frank Lloyd Wright and all of the folks who have shown up and like built these really beautiful spaces and buildings because Arizona kind of affords you all of this room to do something insane and wild and crazy. And, you know, like no one's going to question that your building is slanted and <laughs> it's fine. It's curved. It has this huge, like insane curve all of a sudden somewhere. And you're like, who built this? And they're like, it doesn't matter. It's Arizona. It matches the <laughs> matches the landscape. It's fine. So yeah, it's I just I, I love it for that because nothing is super tall, and it's you know especially if you cross the Paradise Valley and like Phoenix border, and you can't build anything higher than like five stories in Paradise Valley for a reason. And so like the fact that some of that architecture is super intentional because they're like you can't impede the landscape and the view. So like keep your building short, people. So when you get to Arizona, ladies and gentlemen. You're not going to get skyscrapers like that. Exactly. And you can do, well, first, that's very affordable, but also the architects, like a lot of people who I went to school with stayed there because they're able to get so much further in their career in a short amount of time than if you're in New York or San Francisco or Chicago, especially Chicago, because it's just such a city full of architects. Exactly. And very established firms that are almost 100 years old or 50 years old, right? And so it's harder to get in and... The design industry is very white, especially architecture. And it's hard to move up when like in an architecture firm. Okay, we're going on a tangent. In an architecture firm, it is so hard to move up. That is why I left the industry. Because I was like, I'm not working for you for 15 years to make scraps and not do the design, like not even be able to be creative or like do the things, pursue the projects that I would like to pursue. And it's for what, for what, after 15 years, 20 years, then what? Like maybe you're like promoted to partner and you're like, Oh, I'm a partner at someone else's architecture firm. Like, no, thank you. That mirrors like the food industry as well. That idea of like you work for a chef or a restaurant for, you know, 15 years is like a long time, I guess in chef years, but like seven or eight years, it feels like double that. And then eventually like, yeah, we'll let you become like a sous chef or a chef de cuisine or an executive chef, but you're still cooking someone else's food. You're kind of still beholden to either a management company or something like that. So you never really get freedom to like do the thing that you signed up for. And so, yeah, I understand that trajectory quite a bit because you're just like, so what do I do? Like I get out of this and like pursue something else or try to make my own way and create my own path. And like, you realize, you know, you get there and you're like, oh, I understand why all of the white guys are doing well. <laughs> because it's all the white guys holding the keys to the gates. <laughs> okay, cool. And yeah, it just, I've been talking to a lot of people about innovation and about how black people and people of color innovate. And that it's not typically a conversation that we have socially that Black people are innovative. So when you think about new technologies and um, and just new thoughts, new thinking around anything, it's rare that you have like a Black person's name come up or a person of color's name doesn't come up. It's like, oh, who's doing new things in this? And it's like, well, on the list of people, there's no color at all. And you're just like, well, 
is that saying that black people and people of color don't innovate and can't think into the future and can't invent new things? And, or is it that we're doing it and no one's paying attention? So, yeah. So we're like back to the olive oil. So we're in Barcelona. Yeah. Doing an internship. Amazing. Cause Barcelona is amazing. And I asked one of the professors at ASU who had spent a lot of time in Barcelona. I was like, I'm going to Barcelona. What should I do there? And she was like, well, are you going to study work or party? And I was like, you're 40 in your late forties. Hold on. <laughs> I'm like, I have options like that. Um, can I like split my time? Can I do a little of both or all three? Can I party a little bit? Like I didn't and she was a very buttoned up lady, so I was not expecting that. She had like three degrees and so she goes to Spain to turn up. I was not expecting that. It's like about to clutch my pearls. I'm like <laughs> You're just like <laughs> Okay. I was like, so uh, what do you go for? Like, male? <laughs> wow. wow. I was the only undergrad with our group from ASU that ended up going to Barcelona. So it was all these grad students and then me. And it was just so much fun. We were just shoved together in this tiny apartment. <laughs> and <laughs> come on, like college oh, life, like right like- immediate. It was just like your classic barcelona experience and we don't need more room than this it's fine (laughs) and we all got along really well we're all still friends which is awesome and it was the very last weekend of june and the girls and i it was two guys and then two other girls i was living with and so the girls and i went to rome for the very last weekend in june and it was during the second night there that i met my husband giuseppe out and about in Rome at night. And he didn't speak a lot of English. Like people here, Giuseppe speak English now. And they're like, wow, he speaks really good English. And I'm like, yeah, me. Now he does. Me. Now he does. <laughs> now he does. He's an English speaking wife. So he does. Yes. Thank you. I still have to practice. My Italian is not the best, but we're getting there. It's good. It's fine. It's, it's all good. Hard, it's a long language. That's a thing. It really is. It's. There's, I don't think people appreciate. Why are there so many syllables in I everything? Just, everything. I had a guy I worked with at a ho- when I was working in hotels, and he was from Sicily, and he would every day, like every time you would, you have to work on your Italian. I'm just like you're the one out here speaking four languages. I am trying to still master the one. So. <laughs> Thanks. And he's like, no, work on your Italian. So I started to like pick up things when he would talk. And then I got like, I think I downloaded like Babbel or something just to see if I could like pick up some of it just from repetition. And so I got a little better at it. So when I got to New York, he came back to New York to manage the Carlisle Hotel. And so every once in a while I would like ping him or like send him a text in in Italian. He's like, you're getting better. And I'm just like, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, trust me. Saying how are you is not a taxing thing at this point, but anything else. But Italians are very encouraging when you learn yeah. Italian. Like you can say the smallest thing. Like I'll say a very, my mother-in-law and I will have, because she lives next door. So Lena is oh. my mother-in-law. You can see her all on social media because I talk about her all the time. And we'll have a short conversation in Italian. And she's just like, you're getting better. And I'm like, you are <laughs> 12 out of 10 for support. (laughs) Very encouraging. Thank you. I'm like, thank you. You're the kindest person. I was like, I know what I sound like and I appreciate your encouragement. 
Well, I mean, how long have you guys been married then since that was like undergrad? Five years in June. Oh, yeah. wow. So, so we, cool. sorry, we're getting so off track from. No, we're not. No, see, bouncing. this is the thing about this podcast. <laughs> this is literally why I created it because like you will do plenty of press. People will interview you for like magazines and other things to like find out the logistics of your work because that's kind of the one element of your life that they signed up for. And for me, I was like, I want to know the other things I want to know because like your work is an expression of your life and an expression of who you are. And so when I, when I will order a bottle of olive oil and I get into it, I want to know like, what can I learn about you based on the products I'm consuming, based on, you know, the label choices you made and like what your design choices were for your logo and why you chose the name you chose. So like for me, I wanted to give a space for people to learn that Black women and women of color are people first. And we are not the products we sell and not the things we develop and create. We're not our labor in the world. We are ourselves first. And so for me to give people more meaningful experiences with what we do, and what we produce, I feel like let's understand who we are first. And like, and also like you can listen to, I think we're at what, 36 interviews at this point and know by interview number five that like black women and women of color are not a monolith. Like our lives are very <laughs> different across the board and have these really beautiful nuances and these gorgeous details that people just overlook and clump us all together. And it's just like, oh, I'm like, so yeah, no, we're fine. We're not off track at all. I'm asking the questions here, ladies. So yes, so your <laughs> husband, you're an undergrad. You've, you've met this man. And um, it's kind of like, we'll get to the olive oil in a minute. You're in Rome. You've met this person. And you're like, okay, did you go home? Have you like been back to the States? Or so did you just... We kept in touch after I went back to Barcelona. We spent the whole the rest of the weekend together. And he would like take me and my friends around and drive us and, and be like, okay, let's after this hour, you can drive in down a certain hour. You can drive in downtown Rome without having a certain type of permit. And so him and his friend drove us around downtown Rome after it's very late though. It's like after midnight or like 2 AM or something. Of course we're up all night and are like, let's go drive around the Pantheon. <laughs> Cause you can okay. do that very late at night. Nice. <laughs> That's what we did. It was amazing. And obviously worked out well, cause we're married <laughs> She was like, yeah, long distance stuff going. And then here we are. Wonderful. And I ended up staying longer in Europe than I initially planned. And so the internship wrapped up. I went and I traveled around Europe. And then I moved basically in with Giuseppe for a couple months in his Roman apartment. He was like, just come stay with me. I'm like, this is insane. You're just going to invite this <laughs> girl to come live with you. He's like, yes, 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 I am. It's fine. It's fine. You're good. And then I moved back to the U.S. I went to work at an architecture firm and it was a good firm, I guess. Yeah, no, it was a good firm. It just was not what I was looking for in my career. And your first job never, it unless you're extremely is. lucky, is like what yeah. you're looking for for a long-term career. But it was a very clear look into what my future would hold if I pursued the architecture like route. And... I just was like, this is not going to work for me. And I went and worked at a structural engineering firm after that. My specialization has always been in 3D modeling. So it's called BIM, which is building information model. So like the 3D renderings that you see, like single family homes or bigger structures, like I was responsible for 
creating those and then putting in like the people and the plants and all that fun stuff. So there were some aspects of it that were really fun and really creative. And I felt like I could be free and like be more artistic, but I've always liked architecture because it's a balance between being part artist and having a clear structure and foundation that you need to follow. Because if someone, I don't want to say never, I don't think I would make a very good artist because there's too much lack of direction. And I get really overwhelmed by too many choices. (laughs) That's what, yeah. So with architecture, it's like, we're building this thing and here's what we need. And then you have like the criteria you have to meet. And I like that because it has enough structure for me to be creative within. Yeah. And the goal is very clear. That makes absolute sense. And because the product of creativity or for most like fine artists looks a certain way, the assumption is like, you know, a lot of these things is like, hey, you can do whatever you want. And it's like, no, you have to have like this internal discipline to stick with what you're doing. Like I'm sculpting this one thing. No one's directing me to do it. No one's telling me how it needs to look. But I have to like come up with that myself and like ground myself in this idea. And then like that artistic moment pops up when it's like, hey, this is not working the way I wanted to. How do I pivot? How do I solve this problem and still create the thing I want to create? And yeah, that's me. I'm like, if I have a foundation or a structure or an outline to work within, I can be more creative. So I've had to always like split my brain and go, okay, I have to create the structure because I want to create something artistic. And so the first thing I have to do is like create the structure I need to work within because this will not work. It's way too many choices. Just like, I don't, what green do you want? I don't know. (laughs) I loved architecture also because it's continuously problem solving. Because when you are dealing with codes, And with the city and all these regulations, you have to problem solve because you have legal requirements to meet. But in the state of California, it's very, very hard. There's just a lot more requirements today than there used to be, which is good, but it also makes it really difficult to create and pull off certain designs and also makes it really, really expensive. So then we see this lack of creativity because you can't always build these beautiful or creative structures if you don't have the budget for it. And then that is part of the issue with like why these luxury or like creative things are only created or like built by people with a lot of money. Gotcha. And so it makes that like luxury or that really highly designed item inaccessible because it's just so expensive to get. I think in other countries, a lot of Europe, it's still quite affordable to pull off very creative design, especially in architecture. But I also think that they just, there's a different relationship with architects and architecture here. And there's a lot more of them. And there's a lot more independent architects also. So you'll have someone that has their firm or they're just like work independently and it's one or two people. And then by having more options, you have, you know, there's more fish in the pond. And so there's just more options and everyone's they're not all working together. It doesn't feel like a giant Ikea. <laughs> that is the perfect phrase. Yeah, that nails it. Like, it's not a large Ikea of architects. That, I have to use that again for other industries at this point. So now we can get to olive oil. So, you know, you realize like this is not, I think people forget like when you're thinking about a career, you're also thinking about the life you want to live, like your lifestyle and where it will take you. And hopefully your career is kind of a vehicle for that. And so when you discover like, hey, this is not the vehicle 
to get to the life I want, or this is not how I imagine my life looking. How does olive oil enter the picture? So like I said, it was not intentional at all. Here's what I knew. I knew like a few things. I did not want to be stuck at a desk all day. I did not want to work for someone else's like big or small establishment. Like that just Mm. was not going to cut it for me. And I wanted flexibility within my schedule. And when I say that, I don't mean I just wanted to work six hours a day. Like I'm totally cool pulling off a 14 hour day. I just need to be able to do it on my own terms because I'm a very independent worker. Like I don't like distractions. I like to be focused and honed in on my work, but I want to do it on my own terms. And I love working from home and working in food was Giuseppe's idea. I had tasted what I considered, I guess I can say real olive oil, like true, what all, I don't like that word. What olive oil is supposed to be, what olive oil can be for the Mm. first time in Italy the summer I met Giuseppe. So the summer of 2014, when I came to Calabria to meet his parents, because like a couple weeks after he met me, he was like, come meet my mom in Calabria. And so okay. happened. <laughs> I flew to Rome. We drove down to Calabria. I met his mom. He introduced me to his olive trees and I tasted real olive oil. And it was just so different. And I was like, what is this? And he's like, it's olive oil. I'm like, what? Like with what? He's like, olive oil. <laughs> hundred percent from these trees I just introduced you to. What are you talking about? (laughs) And I was like, Oh, this is so cool. Like it just tastes so different. I didn't really ask a lot of questions about it. I just thought it was like this cool thing that tasted really good. And that was it. So while he came to visit me in the U S we went shopping for olive oil and we were in a big box store and I'm not going to say the name because I don't feel like getting sued today. And it was just like the same thing over and over again. Or And then we went to a luxury grocery store in the Bay Area. And it was like the same five, 10 brands. I feel like there's just the same 20 brands like on repeat in different versions of them throughout grocery stores all across the US. Like even in the high-end ones, it's just very homogenous. And then when you looked at the... I started reading the labels because we started paying more attention to things. So I could, you know, we could see what was happening in the industry. And... Everyone had the same varietals. Everyone was making like the same kind of type of olive oil. And then a lot of the Californian oils just started tasting all the same to me. And I was like, I love Californian oil because I'm from California and I don't like to speak poorly about Californian products because I think they're amazing. But there is diversity in each industry for a reason. And it gets really difficult to have diversity when the industry gets kind of like taken over by these homogenous group of products from California and from other places. I'm not trying to single out California. (laughs) Yeah, that's the challenge with like commercializing any food situation is that you end up with only a handful. We've watched it in retail. Once you start to find, in the name of convenience, you have brands like Amazon who kind of consolidate for the consumer in a service sense, like get everything from one place because people do like the one-stop shop situation. This is why we still have like convenience stores and stuff like that and big box stores. It's like, can we go into one place? Can I eliminate my like to-do list and like not have to go to nine different places to get, you know, my list done? So you, you know, I understand the methodology to like, yeah, let's put it all in one place and then let's give people fewer choices. Like let's not eliminate 
all of them, but let's consolidate all these choices because A, consumers won't educate themselves, like the assumption that edu- they won't educate themselves on the, the options. Um, I think this is why, like when we talk about wine, people get very, like their eyes glaze over, they get really frustrated and overwhelmed and intimidated because they're like, there's just so much to choose from. I'm like, but that's the nature of all food. If we're doing it right, you should have a lot to choose from. And even more specifically, you should be able to choose from a lot in the region you live in, in the city you live in. Like there should be a lot of variety just within that space. And in an effort to eliminate frustration for a consumer and like it retrains your brain, unfortunately. So when people shop, they're just like, there's like nine boxes of crackers and I just want a box of crackers. I'm like, well, pick one. Well, I don't know which one I want. I'm like, okay, so that's just, that's mental laziness. Let's not. It's just crackers. Just pick a cracker for the love of God. And so that idea of like removing people's choices to, it reduces their ability to kind of be discerning about what they're eating and what they're choosing and what they buy. And so of course, you know, in the name of capitalism, you respond to the market demand. And if the market demand says we only want to choose from six olive oils and all the others go away, it's just like, so for the rest of us who want more olive oils to pick from, what do we do? So yeah, that sounds about right for the United States. And it is happening. This is also the effect of globalization, right? Like it's happening everywhere. It's happening in Italy and Spain. And we're seeing a lot of the smaller producers of these products kind of just disappear. I think it's especially happening. Well, olive oil industry is weird because you have these giant producers and then you have these smaller producers, but creating high quality small quantity olive oil Mm. is expensive, takes a lot of time. And it's usually something because it's so expensive. It's usually something that people do as like a second career or you fall into it kind of how I've fallen into it. It's very challenging for someone who is young and wants to get into the olive oil industry. And they've made that decision when they're like 21, 22, especially in California, it is so expensive. And you see some of these olive oil companies that are popping up and these brands now, and we'll talk about the difference between like a brand owner, a producer, farmer, and someone like us that does everything. Because there are kind of these different levels within the industry, but in Italy and Spain and a lot of regions in Europe, it's easier to have a larger number of small brands because you still have a lot of property owners. And because the government is more willing to help you if you own a certain amount of or a certain size property. And also they don't see that property as a burden. Like if you owned an acre or two acres in California, especially in the Bay Area, it is a burden. I mean, the taxes alone, like the taxes, you're going to be paying like $20,000 a year in property taxes. Like no oh freaking thank you. Yeah. In Europe, that is seen as like one way for you to produce food for your family. Like you're not going to be taxed up the wazoo because you own that property. Like it just doesn't make that much sense, especially in a place like Calabria or out in the country, like further away from a city in Spain or something like you're just, that's just not going to happen because you're growing your food on that piece of property. Maybe you're selling olive oil locally to your friends. Yeah. It's kind of like a birthright. It's like, this is our land and I'm going to use it. And like, 
grow food here and love it. Like, right. why wouldn't we do that? Come on. <laughs> Who wants to help me pick olives? Like, do you want olive oil? Right. I'm just like, we've created some industry here. We're providing a service. We're providing like a local product. And, you know, we can be stewards of this land. So that means that the government doesn't have to be. It's a win-win. I don't. But I think how I entered the olive oil industry was through seeing how disappointed Giuseppe was with the olive oil selection in California. He was just like, I need to talk to my mom. Like she needs to send me a couple liter tanks. We're not doing this. So he (laughs) called her. He was like, Ma, can you send me some oil, please? And she was like, yeah, whatever. I'll send you oil. And then our friends were asking, can she send us oil? And he was like, hold on. There could be a business here. So she didn't end up sending us oil because we decided to pursue the olive oil idea. But I went and worked at a winery. My friend owns a winery in the Bay Area. And I was like, Shauna, can I please come work under you? I need to learn if this is even remotely what I want to do. Because being in the cellar is a very similar environment to milling and producing olive oil. And I wanted to be around the equipment to even know, like, is this? Because if I hated it, I couldn't make olive oil if I didn't like being around, like, this big old hello (laughs) tractors in a cold cellar. Like, no, I would have hated it. And so being there after the first couple days, I thought it was so cool. She's zipping around the cellar with the um, forklift, and there's just all these grapes coming in, and there's this huge refrigerator. <laughs> it was like a giant science experiment oh, that was yeah. never ending. And conti- it just was never ending because, you know, wine has to be aged. So it has to be racked during a certain time of year. And I was mostly there during the harvest. And so the grapes would come in and we'd either press or crush them. And then they would go and they would ferment. And then we put them in the tanks and... I just learned so much, especially about like the timeline of when, from when the grapes get in to when they go into tanks to when they're eventually going to be put in the barrels. And I just learned, I was fascinated. I thought it was so cool. And I said, if making oval is anything like this, I want to do it. I'm in. (laughs) Sign me up. I'll do it. Thanks, friends. Oh, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's similar to, I opened a property as a guest service agent in Paradise Valley, the Monte Lucia. And we had a restaurant on site and the GM that we had, he had gone to Spain every year with his family and they would go to Andalusia and they would do the whole thing. And so when they tasked him to build the property, he used those experiences. And so the property itself, specifically in Arizona, is very unique because of its inspiration. It's really inspired by Spain and Turkey and Morocco. And it has a lot of those influences there, a lot of like Moorish influences. And so the restaurant is the same. The restaurant was called Prado and still there. And the original executive chef that opened that restaurant was from, yeah, the, their GM was from Venezuela and he was from Italy. And I was just like, okay, these guys are hilarious together. Yeah. And when he started the menu, he had the same problem with the olive oil. He was just like, what is this? I'm not using any of this. And so he asked his mom to send him olive oil for the restaurant. It was fantastic. And so he he made this gelato out of it. Yeah. That still that has forever changed my entire life. Like I had it once and we cuz he made dinner for me and a friend and we were like dying and like melting into the chairs because the meal was fantastic. And then he brings the dessert out and it's like this beautiful dark chocolate ganache tart and finished with like a hit of like 
pepper and chili and a little bit of flake sea salt, little Maldens. And then I was like, well, give me the gelato. And it didn't say what type of gelato, it just says gelato on the menu. And I'm like, all right, I'll get the gelato. So it comes out and I'm eating it. And I'm just like, the texture was incredible. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? And so I'm thinking it's this like citrus kind of gelato. So I get through it. And he comes out and he's like, how was everything, guys? And, you know, and you're thinking this is a co-worker. So he's like, I just want to make sure everything's good. And I'm like, oh, it was great. I was like, what kind of gelato is that? What kind of fruit was in the gelato? Because I was in culinary school at that point. So my, my palate was there and I was like, I'm detecting some things. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, what kind of fruit is in there? Are we talking like uzu? Are we talking like Meyer lemons? What are we doing? And he's like, there's no fruit in there. And I'm like, huh? I was like, so what did you make this out of? He's like, it's the olive oil. And I literally pushed my chair back, stood up and walked away in silence. I was just like, (laughs) we're done here. I don't want to talk to him anymore. We're finished. And I just like, so I understand like going to taste it for the first time and realizing like, I haven't been eating olive oil. I haven't, like, it's so far from the fruit that I've never tasted it before. And so like, even when you eat olives and you realize, okay, I'm eating these olives and then I go have olive oil and there's no relationship there. And you're like, so how are they so different from each other in like flavor profile? So I understand everybody's experience here. I get it. Because ever since then, I was just like, what am I supposed to do now? Now that I know that olive oil can be this. I know. It ruined. We have ruined. Do you know how many people's lives I've ruined through exposing? <laughs> I'm just like a life ruiner. That's great. It's the best type of ruining. Olive oil. They're like, I can't like, do this anymore. I'm breaking up with my. <laughs> this is see. This is the marketing oils. campaign that we need for your olive oil. It's like break up with your olive oil. Yes, that break up with your olive oil. Break up with your olive oil. <laughs> there you go. I've got a new relationship. The other thing about olive oil that's crazy is that it tastes like all the things. Like you know what it tastes like. And when I say that, when you taste it, you're like, I know these things. Like all these things are familiar to me and I've had all yeah. of these things before. before. But what is this? What is this? <laughs> it, it tastes like all the things I've ever eaten. What is this? It's so, yeah. yeah, I think so. Like everyone just understand, like break up with your olive oil. Break we'll give you resources. Olive. We'll give you a resource for new olive oil relationships, but break up with your current olive oil. It's not doing anything for you at this point. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So yes. So now we're like, you've gone to the vineyard, you've done the work, you realize this is something we can get into. This is something we can do. And you're still in California at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. So then we moved to Calabria. So just up from La Castella, Calabria. And we moved here in September, 2017. And Calabria, a lot of people don't know where it is, which is totally normal because you have her really showy cousins up north just like flaunting the goods and Calabria never gets any good marketing until now. (laughs) I'm like, I know where it's located and I know where it is for a number of different reasons, but yes, I understand. Calabria is in the ball of the toe. So it's right across the water from Sicily. And you can actually, if you go to Reggio Calabria, you can see Sicily and it's only a 30 minute ferry ride. And Italians can be very inefficient with many things. They do not mess with their ferries. You'll get on that ferry so fast. Like you'll, it'll be chaotic to get a ticket and it'll be chaotic to find out where to pull in to get on. But they will organize like you have never seen before to get you onto the ferry. 
And then you only have time to get out of your car for one coffee. And then after that, they're like, wrap it up. We're done here. Everyone back <laughs> in their car, get off the ferry. And then you're off that bad boy so quick. Wow. It's incredible. And they leave on time. See, they don't do anything on time except for ferry rides. (laughs) Wow. I wonder who established that energy around the ferry. Like the first person to be like, this is what we don't fool with. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're going to do this. This is not the place to play around, guys. Wow. That's awesome. So it was like that family property that he owned or? Yeah. So Giuseppe's grandfather used to be a really large landowner here. And then he sold off some of the property, got divided between several different family members. Giuseppe's parents also bought some. And so we have our properties, which is like our immediate families. And then we're surrounded by aunts and uncles and cousins. And everyone, we're in a town of 1,400 people. Like we know Giuseppe is related to half, more than half of them, like 70% are <laughs> some sort of cousin. And they know where everybody's property is. So you know who your neighbors are. Like our, right now we live in downtown and some people live out in the olive trees, like on their properties. But for the most part, I'd say people live downtown. And then when you want to go in Campania, is what they call it, you drive there for the day or for a couple hours, whatever. And then you go and like harvest the vegetables or you take care of your trees. And then you're there for a little bit. You get what you need and then you go back home. Gotcha. Nice. Okay. I mean, land ownership is an entirely like four hour podcast with like nine different people on it. And just what that looks like and what that means generationally for people and for like wealth and for resources and all the things. So we'll stick with olive oil because there's tangents galore in that conversation. (laughs) My grandfather was a huge land developer in the Bay Area and my family still owns quite a bit of property in the Bay Area. And unfortunately, I've distanced myself from them quite a bit, but I gotcha. am very familiar with like right. land ownership. ownership. Just ownership is weird in the US. Yeah. It's so oh weird. In Italy, they live like our house. Giuseppe's family owns this building, but our house is like right next door to his parents' house. And then right behind us, we have a couple of units that belong to an aunt. And then everything above us is Giuseppe's and his families. And so when our family grows, we'll grow here. Or if our kid, we have a kid and they're, they don't want to live anywhere else. They can live here. We don't have this like weird ownership where like, this is mine. And then you have to go get yours. Like we're a family and we take care of each other. And then if someone needs something, we provide them with it. Or if there's a friend who really is in need of something, like we give it to them. Why would you withhold something from somebody if you can help them and give it to them. Yeah. That that. attitude, (laughs) (laughs) that attitude is definitely the, is part of the reason why we are where we are is this idea of, well, and it's funny because it's like, it's wrapped up in kind of this delusion of the American dream of, well, you know, if everybody works hard, they can have something and you're just like, what? No, that's not true. Um, (laughs) No. No. It's just, I'm like, we can dissect that fallacy later. So now we're like, I'm trying to keep on the timeline because yes, at some point we do have to discipline ourselves to talk about the olive oil. So now you're back in Calabria and you are, are you reestablishing a business? Is this something that was like local business and it became like global business? Like, was he already like selling olive oil or producing olive oil or? Yeah, they were selling commercially, but not how we are now. They would sell it more in bulk. And also just up his parents have always had, 
other professions, actually, actually like very demanding because they were both directors for local government agencies. And so they had very demanding jobs. And so farming was never something that they hyper-focused on. Giuseppe's father retired quite young. And so he was able to plant olive trees, more olive trees on their family property. And then those grew up and Giuseppe spent a lot of time there with his dad. So he grew up like playing in the olive trees with his cousins and stuff, which is just sounds adorable and lovely. <laughs> like getting sick after eating too much fruit, which like kids that grow up in the countryside with like lots of yes. wild fruits and vegetables knows the cherry ache. Like, <laughs> you get yeah, a stomach like ache I did too much. Tea. <laughs> it's that line you're like I've hit the wall and I shouldn't have been this irresponsible with my consumption yeah and so right. when we started this company we knew what we had to do but not it was very different because then we had to scale it right it's one thing if you're producing enough oil to just like sell the extra because his family would produce oil every year every two years and then they would sell whatever they weren't going to use but to create a product with the intention to sell it to the public, especially when you're importing to the U.S. and you're dealing with FDA regulations and labeling and other restrictions, that's a whole other ballgame. You're, you you're creating a brand and then we, that's not even touching on marketing and introducing and educating consumers on what the product is and what it isn't. And so 2017 was really the year when we were harvesting the product in order to create the olive oil, starting those relationships, partnerships. Most of the people that we worked with then we're still working with. Actually, almost all of them except for one vendor we're still working with and they're all family owned. And last year we were at, I think 80% of our products made in Calabria. And now we're a hundred percent. All of our products are either made in, like with our vendors. So I'm talking about our boxes, the tops, like gotcha. okay. labels, every single piece is either produced in Calabria or resold by a Calabrian business. And nice. every single one is family owned. And we know all of the owners. That's fantastic. Like to have your entire process, you know, produced or sourced locally is the game. I mean, because it goes back into the community and back into those families. And so you can continue to, it makes it sustainable. I think that's, exactly. the, that's the word I'm looking for. It makes and it I think that one of the things that people don't really realize about Calabria is that it's very, very poor region of Italy. I think in the U.S. we have this perception, at least I know I did. I had this perception of Italy being a very wealthy country and they had so much tourism. And I thought I would think about like the Tuscan landscape and Rome and Venice. And I had no idea what was lurking under the surface. And I definitely didn't know what was happening in South Italy. And so Calabria, there's parts of it here where it looks like a third world country. And I'm like, I'm not in Italy right now. This is, I'm in a different yeah. country. It does not look like Italy. It doesn't feel like Italy. It is a different place. And also Calabria, a lot of their funding has just kind of disappeared. It doesn't go where it's supposed to. And without that funding into the infrastructure here, it means that the roads don't get updated when they're supposed to. We still only have like one railway. So two trains can't be on the track at the same time. Like, can you imagine? Okay. The train has to go yeah. in one direction for like the certain hours during the day. Like you can't have two trains on the track. That's insane. Poverty looks the same everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like it's that it presents itself in the same way 
everywhere. Like oppression and lack and all of those things show up the same way no matter where you go. And so I think that's why it's so recognizable. Like, you know, when you're in the presence of it, no matter where you've been and you're just like, yeah, I went to so-and-so and then you like scratch the surface a little bit and it's like underneath of that is something I'm very familiar with because it's like the energy is not any different there. It's like, okay, to your question, which was essentially like a rhetorical one, but like, why would you withhold something from somebody if they need it? And so like that idea of the energy around like withholding things from people and whether it's intentional or malevolent or, you know, unintentional or accidental, you're just kind of like, at some point, there's something you can't get access to what you need. And that looks the same all the time. And so it's just, it's always jarring. I think it should be. I don't know if anyone should ever be sensitized to, like, desensitized to that. I think it's a human instinct to kind of look at something and go, you know, people need things here. What can we do to solve that problem? And when you turn that part of your, like, your soul off, it's, you get what we get here. <laughs> so, oh, there's a profitable benefit to making sure we withhold things. And I think that's where like the United States can sometimes feel unique in the space is that they are one of the, you know, one of the only systems I know that find profit in poverty. We can make money off of poor people by them staying poor. We yeah. can make money off of keeping resources from people. And it's just like, wow, like what level of crazy do you have to exist in to like look at people who have nothing and go, but we can still make it squeeze a dollar out of that situation. And exactly. it's like, you know, you go to around the world and like not all countries, you know, look at that the same way. And it's just like, it's there, but it's not like we're looking at a way to profit from it. So, yeah. So, okay. Okay. Well, I mean, like, again, there's another good reason to break up with your olive oil. Like, where's your olive oil being made? How's it being bottled and packaged? Who's doing it? Is it, you know, is it benefiting anybody but another big brand that's already doing just fine? Or, you know, could you benefit a community of families instead? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, that works. Yep. So, like, creating a name and, like, back to, like, the branding and marketing side of that, like, to create an actual brand and create a system that allows you to kind of keep things in circulation. Like, initially, it sounds like, hey, we harvest this olive oil, we sell off our extra, and now we intentionally are producing this product. And so this product needs a name, it needs a label, it needs a bottle, it needs, like, it needs a life in the market. So what does that conversation look like? We wanted to create a product that felt luxurious, but not over the top guilty luxurious. And I was just talking about this with a really good friend the other night. So when you use something and you love it and you enjoy it, you don't have this guilty feeling about using it. And that's what both of us wanted people to have and feel when they used our olive oil. Like this is beautiful and good and it's good for me and I love it, but it's not over the top self-indulgent. And we wanted that to be reflective in every single aspect. So it had to look good. Obviously it was going to taste good because we were making it. But other than that, (laughs) it had to look good. And then we also walked the olive oil shelves in the US and also here in Italy. And it was just full of like doodad swirl, olive tree, like women, like like, you know, like, like round, like mm, doing things. <laughs> and we didn't want that. Or like, how about it just says like olive oil. And then you just have like a very clear label. Like we don't need to have all these things on the label. We're both very simple people. We don't like anything to be overly detailed. 
And also because the olive oil industry is so old and it is dominated by older people, they have a little bit different of like a aesthetic than the younger generation. So we wanted it to appeal to many different people. Like we're not just targeting millennials. Like that's not who XL is targeting. A lot of our customers are over 50, but we didn't want it to feel like we were excluding millennials because that's gotcha. our generation. It just, I don't know, we didn't want it to feel aged. Like the olive oil is already full of so many old things and old people yeah. and olive trees are old as hell. We <laughs> did not need anything else old and up in here. Like we need yeah. young. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, even the trees is old, y'all. Let's not do that. Um, <laughs> wow. It makes sense. I mean, like everything is like if you go to the olive oil like aisle in a grocery store, everything is like that weird shade of green. And most of the labels do have like this garish olive on it. Like this is kind of cartoonish illustration of an olive. Or you have like some woman on a Grecian urn, which makes no sense at all for olive oil. And you're just like, (laughs) why would you? Okay. It looks like the beginning of the Hercules movie. I don't. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, I usually am attracted to packaging that's like a lot more simplistic and it's just like, okay, just tell me what's in it, where it's from, and we can move on. Cause I already showed up in the aisle because I need olive oil. So you don't have to sell me on it. I don't need this to tell me anything. I need the details though. So I'm just like, do what you do with a bottle of wine. Like, where is it from? Who's producing it? And, you know, give me some dates and some times, like the things that are pertinent to me picking a better olive oil, but like the pictures don't. Exactly. They don't help me. And you're just like, okay, well. And so we also want to create a couple different olive oils because we have different flavor profiles depending on which trees we're harvesting, which rows, like olive and what you can get into that. But we have, we still produce, oh, actually this year we produce four different types of oil, but we always produce the Avis, the Tutti and the Lena, which are three main oils. And then we produce the number nine, which is a cooking oil, which will be coming out later this spring. I'm really excited about. I was going to have questions about that, but never mind. I'm good. Yeah. And they have completely different flavor profiles. And the reason being because they're from different family properties. And so all the family properties, they are organic. We're not certified organic, but they're grown organically. And they're tested twice a year by our chemists. And then we also send all of our oils to panel with a wonderful agronomist at his private panel here in Calabria. And we test acidity levels, polyphenol levels, peroxide levels, like everything that you need to test to make sure your olive oil is actually extra virgin, we test. So all of our oils go to lab, which is extremely important. And then on the back of our labels, it has the harvest date, the bottle date, and then you can find the acidity and peroxide level, polyphenol levels on our website. And if you're having trouble navigating our website, you can always email us for that information. But it just, there's... Not a lot of transparency, like in the olive oil industry, there's different organizations whose rules you can follow. Like California Olive Oil Council has their own regulations. International Olive Council has their own regulations and they're in Madrid. And we use each one kind of as a guide because we're not part of any one organization. And when you produce olive oil, you're not obligated. You don't have to join and be like, we're certified by this board or that board, like you, that's not, you don't have to do that. But there's not truly a regulatory party who's going to test your oil and say whether or not it's extra virgin. Like there's just not a ton of regulation in the industry. 
which mm. makes the industry troublesome. And so on one hand, it's good because it makes it affordable for producers like us to create a really high quality product because we can send our oils to lab ourselves at a lab that we really, really trust. On the other hand, it's not regulated. But when you introduce certain types of regulation, it allows that establishment or that organization to kind of mess with things. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they can, yeah. if they're like, well, you have to test at this lab or you have to do this, then you start to get into, I can't afford that. Why do I have to follow your exact rules? Like the whole point right. of producing food is to be able to be creative and create beautiful, delicious products and not have to follow someone else's rules. So it's this, it's hard. Yeah. It's a line in a balance always. And it's like, how do you, it's like not being able to get like raw milk in the United States or really good cheese or what is it? Uh, like black footed pigs for making pancetta or prosciutto. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, the United States is like, eh, you can't do none of that here. And you're just like, but other people are doing it. And you're like, Why but not? it's my choice. That's the other it's thing. My, if I'm going to, you know, like, Hopefully in the future with this whole mask business, we can use this as an example to argue our points about being able to get raw milk in this country. If they had a choice to not to walk in with a mask, I should be able to buy raw milk. Like I'm exactly. just saying. <laughs> I buy raw milk at the grocery store here, not regularly because it goes bad so quickly. So when I am able to use it, I can buy it. And it's from a local farmer here i don't know them but i know that they sell it and it looks very commercialized like their label looks very commercialized i'm like this is very official like this would be a <laughs> oh, like, i'm waiting for, like, this <laughs> I'm looking for a handwritten label on a glass bottle what is this no but it's because it's normal here and it's not yeah. a huge amount like of course they're producing quite a large amount but it's not so commercial i guess right that it's right I don't know. You just have not to at the pace that we're doing it. Yeah, it's not like you're getting like, oh yeah, you. The fact that we're producing so much milk that you can go into like a Seven Eleven and grab a gallon of milk. That's a lot of milk. I mean, you have put milk everywhere. You've got milk in schools. You've got milk in convenience stores, gas stations, grocery stores. Like, there's milk everywhere. And yeah. so, like, yes, you should be able to produce it in larger quantities if you have enough cows, but like at the pace that we're producing it, like people aren't even drinking it enough exactly. to justify this level of milk production. So it's like this bottle of water. I'm holding oh. up a Calabria bottle nice. of water. This is Calabrian sparkling water and it's from here. It's from this region, but you're not going to find this all over Italy. Like it's very popular here and the label, it's like very official. They make, I'm sure they make a couple millions of bottles every year, but it doesn't feel like this, exploitive company right i'm just it like it just feels you. like it's a company that makes a lot of sparkling water and that's it water. <laughs> that's all we're asking from producers in general like what we've done here is monstrous and so you're just like i don't need you can produce a few million bottles a year doesn't necessarily mean you have to like take over the world just stay in your lane it's fine like make your stuff look good make it you know competitive but like oh like when we get to this point where it's just gross and you're like ugh, the same and then you find out like the same six bottles are from the same brand but they've just slapped different labels on them it drives me insane that's happening with olive oil right now there's a company that's buying up a bunch of olive oil brands and i'm like okay here we go to what end i'm just this is what for me like outside of profit why would you do that 
there's no reason because it's literally for it's driving a profit margin. And that's all that is. So that means we suffer with like bland, mediocre olive oil. Which but for who me cares is deeply, about you? What about the investors? Exactly. And then you? I'm deeply in, and for me, I'm like, so do investors not eat or sleep or use products or exist in, are they alien? Like, help me. In, and that's one of my favorite arguments. It's like, well, we have shareholders. And I'm like, okay, so do they not consume anything? Do they live in a bubble? And so they don't require exercise or rest? Are they robots? Is it an AI that's your shareholder? Somewhere, so, and it's like when you start to, I love the, your point about luxury. And it's something that I've been obsessing over for the last couple of years is like, what does luxury really mean? What does that look like? And how is that executed and expressed in the world? And d- is luxury synonymous with cost? Like that conversation is immediately what comes up when someone says something's luxurious or it's in the luxury category. And the first thing that people assume is that it's going to be expensive. And I'm like, but luxury is an experience. It's not something it's, it has, and like when you look at the definition of the word luxury in dictionary, it never says anything. There's like three or four new definitions that add this conversation around cost, but old original definitions have nothing to do with cost and everything to do with like expression and experience. How does it feel? Like when you go into the Sistine Chapel and you look up, that is a very luxurious experience. And for me, I'm just kind of like, can we just kind of tweak this conversation around luxury? Like luxury is a really great bottle of like bubble bath, something rich that smells amazing that you feel good when you sink into doesn't have to be an expensive bottle of it, but it just, it's well-made. You can tell there's a lot of thought and care behind it because of how it works. And I'm just like, so can we live in that space around luxury? There are some really beautiful properties around the world where you can stay. They aren't all very expensive, but the experience of staying there is super luxurious because you feel so well taken care of. And so for me, like to your point about the olive oil, I'm just like, luxury olive oil means it tastes incredible. It feels good going down. It feels good in your mouth. It smells wonderful when you crack the bottle open. You feel well nourished when you're finished eating it. And for me, I'm like, so that speaks to luxury to me. Like there's plenty of like $40 bottles of olive oil out there that are trash. Let's just say it. Just because the price point's high doesn't make them luxurious. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. So again, price does not equal quality, everyone. Price does not equal quality. We're not going to go there. I, I just, because think of all the people who look expensive, <laughs> but they aren't quality people. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, it, man. And yeah. And also, here's <laughs> the thing that bothers me the most is when we have, okay, wait, let's talk about <laughs> the difference. This is so important. This is okay. so important between a brand owner, a producer, a farmer. And yeah, let, let's just focus on those three. A brand owner is someone that owns, in the olive oil industry, is someone that owns an olive oil brand. They may be responsible for marketing that product. They may be responsible for creating the name of that product. And they purchase the oil from someone else. It can be an importer. It can be a middleman. It can be a producer. It can be a farmer. It doesn't matter. They purchase that product that oil from someone else and they're putting their label on it and then they're selling it to the public. That is not an olive oil producer. That is a brand owner. There is nothing wrong with that. 
not saying that I'm not trying to connect any negativity or bad things onto that. However, as an olive oil producer, it's very difficult in this industry when I see brand owners speak on production and a lot of things there get lost because I'm like, that's not what's happening at all. Different things. Then you have producers. A producer is someone that makes olive oil, but that's where we get tricky because you can produce olive oil and be, you can be an olive oil producer without having harvested the plants. You could purchase olive oil from someone else and do the blending and send your oils to panel and make sure that your blends are really incredible and then bottle it and sell it to the public and also be a brand owner. So that way you're a producer and a brand owner. Then you go all the way back to the farmer. The farmer is the person and or group of people, organization, whatever, that is farming and harvesting the olives that are going out there at the crack acid dawn to get the olives off of the tree, take them to the mill. Once they go into the mill, the olive oil comes out and then they have that olive oil. And that means that they're a farmer and olive oil producer. There are people that are strictly olive farmers that sell their olives to others for brining purposes in order to make olive oil. That person exists as well. There is no one road or one way to produce olive oil. And I think it's very clear that we kind of go through how people may exist in this world. Because just because you own an olive oil company does not mean that you're a farmer. It doesn't mean that you're a producer. It means that you own an olive oil company. And there's a lot behind that that should be discussed. Yeah. When people start to think about like retail and selling things and getting into like that particular game, they have to think about like private labeling and things of that nature. Because you do have a lot of, you know, when you walk into a handful of larger stores and I don't have to worry about being sued. So when you walk into like a Target or a Walmart or or a Costco and they have their own labeled brands, a lot of times they have a private label branch of their company that exists. And so they do take products that are already, you know, in the market and they become brand owners of a lot of those products because they're able to develop the label, create a distribution channel and create retail space on their shelves for their own brand. I'm like, so private labeling, I also like private labeling in and of itself is not a terrible idea. I think it's the ethics behind what you do. How invested are you in the people actually producing the product? that you're putting your label on? Like, what are you doing to uphold and lift that particular industry, company, brand, or whoever you're using in the bottle at that point? And like, how do you take care of them? How is the relationship mutually beneficial at that point? And unfortunately, with a lot of brands, a lot of large companies like that, not those specific ones, I love Target, don't get me wrong. (laughs) That the challenge typically is that because there's no oversight, and there's no like independent like review. No one knows like how heavily abused a lot of those relationships are. And so like I think like when the fashion industry started to kind of talk about their own challenges in that way and the fact that, you know, they are producing these really beautiful garments, but how it's being produced, who is being exploited in its production, it's less sexy at that point. It's not it luxurious. Honestly, when I don't know who is making the products, I get creeped out. And with olive oil, because I know 
I know lots of things. <laughs> got so much dirt. She's like, I got so much. I can't share. <laughs> got lots of things that I can't say. Yeah. Because Calabria is the second largest olive oil producer in Italy. Puglia is the first region. And all of South Italy, so that's anywhere from Campania down, they produce 84% of Italy's olive oil. And just Puglia and Calabria together produce 62%. So imagine trucks and trucks and trucks coming down here, hooking up hoses like gas. Like these are the size of a gas truck that's going and stopping at all the gas stations to refill the gas. Imagine those trucks coming down here, picking up oil. And there's so many things that happen behind the closed doors that we don't see. And so when people are, are like, yeah, I just, I just buy this olive oil. I'm like, I understand that's the decision that you're deciding to make, but there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. It's oh taken years to unpack. And then we're not even going into like how much workers are exploited here and the seasonality of workers in the olive oil industry. Because this is the thing that's tough about this industry is that we only harvest from September to December. And that's actually a long time frame. Like it's not continuous. It'll be like some months are on, some months are off, some weeks we're on, some weeks are off. But for the most part, that's what's happening. It's we're working on and off throughout the entire fall to bring in the harvest. And Giuseppe and I, we work every single day out harvesting. Like I'm not kicked back in a chair, just like, can you get the olives off the top of the tree, please? That would be so lovely. Thank you. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm doing. Like, that's not my life. No, I'm like climbing in the tree. It's very physically taxing and exhausting. And I love it, but it's very long days, 14 hour days as we harvest in the morning. And then we take the olives in the afternoon to the mill to get milled. And then at the very end of the day, we have olive oil that comes out. But also that relationship with the mill is very crucial because you want to make sure you're going to a good mill that's clean, that they're like rinsing out the machines after every single use. So your olives aren't getting contaminated by somebody else's product because maybe their olives were sitting for a little bit longer. And like there's very specific details that you have to pay attention to in this industry. And it is all the details. That's so not you can't like fix olive oil. I mean, you can, if that's what you want to do, you can fix it, but that's not yeah. a road we all know we how. Take. Right. And like, we all know what that looks like when a brand chooses to fix something. Yeah. No, thanks. I don't. You can blend. So. Like if we're, we had like the Lena a couple months ago, it's just up and I tasted it and it was so bitter. And I started tearing up. I was like, we can't sell this to people. It's too, <laughs> the polyphenols, the polyphenols before we, filtered were over a thousand, which is insane. Like usually polyphenols for oils are 300 once they're in a bottle and all of our oils have really high polyphenol content and polyphenols are antioxidants. Right. It was over a thousand and now it's still over 800 even after filtering. So it was like tasting gasoline. You're like, okay, (laughs) so. We can't do this. We have to add, we have to add more. I'm like, so can we turn this into a lip balm or maybe a faced oil or something? It's got all the antioxidants, but I'm not eating it. I'll apply it to my skin, but I'm not going to eat it. Oh my God. So she's calmed down a little bit and the Lena will continue to calm down in the bottle and on the journey to the U.S. Okay. And then once the polyphenol content will always remain very high, but the pungency will just kind of like 
lower a little bit, which is fine. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, so some, I mean, but again, like, I don't think people have conversations about a single brand producing multiple olive oils because most people don't talk about olive oil the way they talk about wine, which they should. It's like, you know, you have varietals and you have regions and you have things that affect your crops and that add certain flavor profiles that you recognize when you have olive oil. And because unfortunately, like commercially produced olive oil at this point all has like a single note or has no flavor at all. It's just like it's adding fat. And that's just about all it's doing. You're able to like, you know, when you're eating olive oil, you want to be able to taste something. And so like bitter is an option. I mean, sometimes super bitter is not great, but for me, bitter does work. It depends on what I'm using it for and like why I chose that. So maybe I have three or four different bottles of olive oil because all from the same brand because they, you know, they all taste different. They all give me something different. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but we have like, we need to think about olive oil candles, maybe some hair drops. Cause I just, okay, it's maybe so we don't eat it. <laughs> I was like, maybe we don't eat it. Maybe it's a cosmetic. <laughs> the one thing that we have noticed about olive oil, at least for me, cause I used to use it a lot as a moisturizer. I would like for it to absorb better into the skin. And so that's gotcha. where I think that once you do turn it into a cosmetic, other things have to be added to it in added, order to yeah. be better absorbed. Exactly. But the polyphenols are amazing. Like if I'm having really terrible time with my skin, I just put some olive oil on my hands and I just kind of leave them. Just don't oh, yeah. touch anything for a little bit. And then I rinse it off. <laughs> it's going to soak in what it can and then we'll have to wash the rest of this off, which I'm okay with. I just, you know, I don't mind a little extra work for my, to take care of my skin or myself. So yeah. So good Lord. See, this is what happens with the hour and a half. And I'm just like, I already put out an hour and a half because sometimes there's tech issues and other times there's rambling and it's, it's fine. <laughs> uh, so how can people, what is the best process? to break up with their current olive oil and to like find their way into a better relationship with your olive oil? Well, don't throw it out. Don't do that. Okay. (laughs) Just like use it or leave it in your house or maybe here's the thing. And a lot of Southern Italians will talk about like jealousy. So I'm not jealous of you using other people's olive oil. I'm not jealous of this industry. I encourage it. If you have another olive oil you've been wanting to try, try it because now's the time because our olive oil is not going to be arriving or shipping to the U S until March. Okay. Pre-orders are open. So you can go to XL that's E X A U olive oil.com. And you can shop the oils, the Avis pre-orders already sold out. It sold out in like three hours, which was crazy. And the Lena and the Tutti are still in stock. So you can pre-order those. They'll be shipping in March. And then what would be really incredible to do is to get a little glass, like a little shot glass, or maybe like a small mason jar that's like two or three inches high and get two of them and pour your current olive oil into it, like pour maybe a tablespoon or two teaspoons, whatever, into that glass. And then in the second glass, once our olive oil arrives, pour a little bit into that cup and then cover them with like a napkin or a towel or something and do a little tasting. When you taste olive oil, you actually sip it. You don't eat it off a spoon or something. Or dip also, it in like, half I'm bread. sorry <laughs> to throw the chefs under the bus right now. I love you guys. But please stop trying to teach people how to taste olive oil off of spoons and your skin. Like, that's not how it's done. It's tasted out of proper cups 
specifically the tasting, the olive oil tasting cups, but most people don't have olive oil tasting cups in their house. So just use like a shot glass or short glasses. Something short. Okay. Exactly. When you taste them, take a decent amount into your mouth and kind of swish it around your mouth and then kind of suck it towards the back of your throat, like make that noise. And then like coffee, wine, olive oil, like that process of getting it into your palate down to your throat. Yeah. Taste it the same you would wine and then taste the olive oil you have right now and then taste our olive oil and just see what you taste. Mm. Just see what you taste. Like just explore that process and see what's there. And then you can also follow us on social media, especially Instagram. We're always posting. And our handle is XAU olive oil. So that's E-X-A-U olive oil. And then we're also on Twitter and Facebook at the same handle. Awesome. 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 Yeah. I had to, when I moved back to Philadelphia, there's a little place in Arizona now too, where you can go in and you can taste olive oils and vinegars. And so they have them in the very small like barrels and that kind of thing. And they have the tasting cups and you can go in and you can like, they have them broken up by region. And so like, that was my first experience of like a proper, like properly tasting olive oil at that point. Cause that's all they did. And so yeah. they're like, no, there's no bread. No, here's your cup. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, this is how you need to taste those. And it was a tremendous experience. Like after that, whenever someone's like, well, we have this olive oil and they shove you a tray of bread. You're like, I just need a little glass and I can taste it that way. Thanks. They're just like, oh, I'm like, yeah. Once someone tells you how to do it properly, you're just like, I can't like not do it. I can't unsee that. Especially because um, all the flavors, point of having them in a small cup is that, and covering it, is that that little cup kind of fills up with all the flavor profiles. So once you take that cover off, you're able to just like quickly like, smell. Exactly. Smell, yeah. That was great. Like, like that was the woman who was working. It was like me and my brother had walked in. And so like, she was like, what are you guys here for? I'm like, I haven't been in here yet. Talk me through the process. And so she like walked us through. So we did olive oil first and then we did vinegars after that. And like vinegars were very similar tasting those and same process. And so she, you know, helped us like smell and, you know, cause she did, she walked over, she's like, well, here's your stuff. And you got like your little kit, which essentially were your glasses and then a few napkins and she was like, you know, I would go region at a time and then like cleanse your palate a little bit. And she'd always bring something out. There were like random little cups of coffee beans around to kind of clear out your olfactory situation. And then you would start again. So yeah, so I was just, that was such a cool experience to like be able to taste olive oil properly. We're going to start, once the oil starts shipping, we're going to start doing private tastings with people to just go through and like just teach how to properly taste and talk about olive oil and production process and everything. Cause people, they've been asking us to do this for a while, have like a olive oil quick 101 class crash course. And then also just talk about like the production process and what goes into that, because we could talk about this for six more hours and we still wouldn't be through everything. And one day when I, decide to be super indulgent. I will do something like that because I'm like, we need things. Well, again, because I will continue and it'll be like three hours from now. Thank you. (laughs) You know, the one thing I love about doing the podcast is that we can talk about life. And so like now when someone goes to buy the olive oil, they have so much context and so much like story behind what they're purchasing and why they're purchasing it, as well as like the experience of knowing like, you know, we've touched the people who produce this thing. Now we have an understanding of like how they exist in the world and how they move through the world and like the things they love and what they're invested in story. So I feel like, you know, again, it's like, it adds a bit more to the experience on the user side. 
Everyone, please look for the harvest date, not the bottle date, the harvest date on the back of your olive oil when you're purchasing. There you go. And if you don't see a harvest date, just go ahead and put it back, back <laughs> away from the shelf. I did go not say the, that. I was like, go that. on That's the internet. This is why I say these things. Go on the internet, go to the website and order a proper bottle of oil. I'm just, I'm not here to judge. Okay. No, actually I am. I am here <laughs> to judge because I think we should all be buying better products and consuming better food. And I am just here. That is my mission to make sure you are eating better than you did last year. And if that's just changing your olive oil right now, this is what you need to do. But yeah, just go ahead and just slide that bottle back on the shelf. If there's no harvest date, they're not doing you any services. Just put it back. Get something else. And that is all for today's episode. This has been the Afros and Knives podcast with Tiffany Rozier. And I want to extend a huge thank you to my guests this week and to you, the audience, for tuning in. I love this community of listeners and I am so grateful for your support. If you love this podcast, you can show your support by subscribing, sharing, and rating this podcast wherever you listen. I mean, how many times can I say podcasts? Just rate the show wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Luminary, all, I think we're on 11 platforms now. One thing I would love to see this season is for folks to leave comments on the episode pages on the website. So be sure to visit the Afros and Ives website, which is afrosandives.com. And when you're there, you can become a member, you can sign up for the newsletter, and you can leave comments for my guests and for myself on their interview pages. If you've never been to the website before, each interview has a page that's dedicated to it. It features our guests. It gives you more information about who they are, maybe their product or service or organization and how you can get connected. So there's just a lot more information there for after the show. And so I encourage you to check out the website and get engaged a bit there because there's just so much more to offer and a lot more value that can be added to the podcast. You can also watch all of the interviews that are in video on the website as well. There is a dedicated video channel on Vimeo, but it's definitely a lot easier to just jump on the website and watch the podcast happen. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter. It'll let you know who's going to be on the show. It will also feature their five-minute interview. If you don't know about the five-minute interview, again, go to the website. It'll tell you all about it. If you would like to participate in the five minute interview, that's where you can sign up for that as well. So yeah, thank you so much for listening in this week. I hope you found it valuable and interesting. And um, as I continue to bring these episodes, definitely, you know, find me on Instagram at Afros and Ives. And, you know, if you want to nominate someone for the show, if you want to reach out and ask about how to be on the show yourself, that is definitely a place to do it. So yeah, so take care of yourselves. And until next week, may you be happy. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be at peace.